there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. First things first, in episode 27, I mentioned my mom got a tattoo with me, and I said that I thought it was a Chinese hope symbol on her ankle. Wrong. Mom actually got the phrase, just show up in cursive script on her wrist. Kara Tippett's was an inspiration to my mother, and her slogan, so to speak, was based on her work raising money for cancer research. The story is that she arranged her first 10K run in New York on the day of the run. The weather was so horrendous, and Tippett's just told herself to just show up. So did everybody else, and it started off uh, an amazing run, so to speak, of fundraising. So sorry, Mom, but that's what would mom has on her wrist so that was her first tattoo so all right on with the stories yeah my second tattoo inked on my 43rd birthday in 2009 was similar to the first in that it was a reminder of my artistic pursuits and my belief in why one goes the distance to create art in a world of commerce so here we go Art and marriage are commingled, and one of them breaks. The strain on the other usually leads to cracks and ultimately disintegration. Jen had engaged in an affair with a mutual friend, but she didn't want anybody to know it. While there may have been many reasons we divorced, her affair after the year was the catalyst for the change. In order to mitigate the damage to her reputation, she decided to go after mine. Fabricated stories of me stalking her online caused close friends to abandon me for the Ellison camp. I wasn't terribly surprised and my response was to dig down into the art that was becoming increasingly difficult to create in this toxic environment i was surrounded by actors and there was that constant debate uh, whether or not those people were hanging out with her whether they were my friends what they were you know what what, what they were getting out of it so i ended up writing a lot about art that summer and fall After writing for 20 years, I finally realized that I was a writer and believed it, she said. It occurred to me at the time that we have elevated artistry onto a strange pedestal that requires a belief in oneself to declare legitimacy in the job title. No one sane would say, I've been fixing toilets for 20 years and I finally realized that I was a plumber and believed it. I've never heard of a garbage collector needing to believe he was indeed a garbage collector in order to feel good about collecting your trash at 4 a.m. Now, mind you, there is a difference between a commercially successful artist, a talented artist, a brilliant artist, and a bad artist. Maybe the writer in question is just a bad writer. So what? That in, in and of itself does not mean she is not a writer. It just means she's not particularly good at it after 20 years. Or maybe it took her 20 years to become a confident writer. 
It's that belief thing that kind of sticks out. Only an artist feels the need to believe in his or her, him or herself in order to feel validated in the label. A pig farmer doesn't need to believe in his title. He raises pigs. That's the proof in the pudding. So jump to a Tuesday night. We're across generations at the fabulous Chopin Theater. Poetry, inspiring, intelligent, moving poetry. On a stage, a post-show discussion. For poetry to be meaningful, it has to mean something, is said. A young cat gets up on the mic. He spells out his situation, inspired by calls for the youth to avoid aggression and violence in their lives. He discovers poetry and delves into it headfirst. He then discovers that there's no money in the field, that he has found his passion but cannot make a living doing it. And I thought, so? Anyone can be an artist. Art, an awful lot of it, can be created and displayed or performed for virtual, virtually no money up front. A poet writes poetry. It costs nothing to write poetry but the time. A playwright can sit down and write a play and spend no money down except for the coffee and cigarettes. The big question is, are you an artist or are you only an artist when it pays to be one? Because if you're only an artist when there's a carrot on the end of that stick, you're a tourist. And perhaps that's the difference. A plumber plums for money because it is work that by itself does not edify his life. A garbage collector would almost never just collect trash for free. But an artist? A writer writes. A poet writes. A playwright writes. A painter paints. An actor acts. A dancer dances. A mime is despised. For art to be meaningful, it has to mean something. If the art is truly just a job you do for the money, it's no different than fixing a toilet or collecting trash. I mean, I wrote about art nearly non-stop. You know, you really shouldn't smoke, it's bad for you. I smoked for 20 years and I guess for every three cigarettes, someone felt the need to point this blatantly obvious fact out to me. To this day, every once in a while, I take what I call a non-smoker's vacation and allow myself to grab a pack and enjoy the sensation of doing something bad for me. I suppose I could drink to excess, but I generally am not enamored of being so completely out of control, and the squares leave me a bit smelly, but with all my faculties intact. In Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, there's a story of big tobacco trying to figure out what made smoking cool. They identified the type of kid who starts smoking in high school to find out what about smoking was attractive to this kid and why he started up the cancer sticks in the first place. This kid was generally anti-authoritarian, independent thinking, sexually promiscuous, and on the cutting edge of pop culture. The discovery that Big Tac Tobacco made was that smoking wasn't cool, smokers were cool. With that model in mind, let's take a look at art and the artist. Is art cool? The kid that becomes an artist in high school wears unusual clothing, intentionally bucks the system, systematic conformism that's taught in American high schools, marches to the beat of the whack-ass drum in his head. He paints instead of goes out for football. She writes gothic death poetry instead of trying out for the cheerleading squad. The kid that aspires to become an artist is an anti-authoritarian kid, a, an independent thinker. Art isn't cool. Artists are. So where'd that kid go? 
I mean, we we idolize that kid in films and books. Even something as artistically suspect as the movie Footloose espouses the rebel artist willing to break the rules so that the skinny kid can do the robot in a barn. Our mythic heroes are rule breakers and miscreants. One of the most popular television dramas ever created is about, an, is about New Jersey criminals. And one of the most popular movie trilogies of all time is populated with pirates. Try and name one cool character in history who was conformist and law-abiding. I mean, even Jesus Christ was a complete fringe rebel fighting the conformist dogma of the day. So don't hand me some right-wing conservative nonsense about being a good, obedient Christian. Where did that kid, with all the self-respect, confidence, and independence go? The common picture is that he grew up and out of his childlike ways, that today's liberal, progressive, anti-government long hair just needs to get a job, make some money, have some kids, and he will naturally become conservative in his thinking. Well, this equates conformism and materialism with adulthood and wisdom, but does not bear out empirically. Mahatma Gandhi was a rule breaker. Churchill was a rebel. John Brown might have been insane, but he was right. In the improvisational theater world, Del Close was idolized, but his progressive ideas and artistic challenges are, for the most part, used to get ahead in the industry and become a star. America's Got Talent will never pave the way for another Bob Dylan. Jack Kerouac wasn't a bestseller until he was dead. Okay, Waiting for Godot was under threat of being banned in its English language premiere because the Lord Chamberlain claimed the word erection was indecent. Beckett refused to change it, and the play went on anyway. Today, theater artists are so timid that the threat of being shut down because of smoking in a theater in a play that calls for smoking is instantly compromised, and the vagina monologues is changed to the hoo-ha monologues without batting an eye. Where did that badass, to hell with the consequences, kid disappear to? Where did that artist disappear to? Embracing the path of the artist is to fully immerse oneself in a love of failure. The artist can never beat the system and, like Terry Gilliam, can only lose beautifully. I seek, though, to seek out those gorgeous failures and laud them, but they're increasingly difficult to find. The ones who look like that kid are generally just lazy and uninspired, but put on the pose. They wear the clothes, but don't put in the work. The ones who put in the work are so often focused on recognition or compensation that the criminal spirit of artistic risk has been bred out of them. Why? Why is it so hard to refuse to accept this rampant mediocrity? Did we all really just buy into the message that all we need to do is get a real job because art isn't a profession? Did we all just swallow the Kool-Aid that insists you aren't professional unless you're getting health insurance? Are we satisfied with the simple-minded dregs served up on television and theaters and self-help books everywhere? Further, while there are scoff laws in abundance in the non-art world, they aren't the cool ones. They're those who simply joined into the dog-eat dogma and I gotta get mine first. I wanna live like a rock star bullshit that allows them the sociopathic capitalist drive to foreclose on families and pay McDonald's workers with debit cards that come with massive fees. The rest have absorbed the message that if we all just learn how to get ahead by watching Survivor, we too can conform to the tribe while backstabbing our allies because it's just a fucking game. They are the Donald Trumps, the pharma boys, the CEOs who steal our savings and get millions of dollars in severance for the crime. They are the shameless self-promoters and underhandedly vicious. They are also the minor bullies using race or sex as bludgeons against those they perceive as in their way. They are the scumbags of history, by any means necessary, but only if it serves themselves.
So where are the cool outlaws? Where are the Lenny Bruces, the Frida Kahlo's, the Steve McQueen's, the Ma Rainey's? Where are the artistic criminals? Without the criminals, we'd still be required by papal law to only perform morality tales from the Bible. It took cats who risked being tortured and hung to break that door down. Without the high-minded rebel, we'd still be paying taxes to England. Without the will of those willing to ignore the conformity of getting along, we'd still require blacks to use separate facilities and gays to be living in those tiny closets. The revolution is not one big thing, but a series of individuals willing to take the heat brought down on the heads of those who will not conform and will not be silenced. The revolution is an individual one. The choice to be that rule-bending, authority-questioning artist is a personal one. Vice is the love of failure. It is likewise the love of freedom and the rejection of the ordinary. It is the declaration that the fear of abandoning the crowd will not prevail. Where's that kid? Now well, you can find her smoking a J behind the bleachers because she definitely isn't dressed for success in networking. He's working his day job, but going home and writing songs and poetry by candlelight. So who's the greatest artist on the planet? Well, none of us has probably ever heard of that person, because that artist creates with a love of failure and inspiration that can only be seen by the rest of us as a vice. At a certain point, my strident antagonism to commerce infecting the artistic process became a routine. I became, as one good friend at WBEZ called me, the art for art's sake asshole of Chicago. Hey, Don, come here. Yeah? You're the resident art for art's sake asshole in Chicago. Answer me this. My group was seen by a major corporation. They liked what we were doing, told us that we were on the breath, that we were the breath of fresh comedic air they were looking for for their newest national ad campaign, and we bit. It turns out that they want us to do the same old tired crap written by their committee of idiots. It's a bunch of crap, man. We don't even get to submit material. Yeah, what's the problem? They're offering us a ton of money. Art for art's sake, asshole, what would you do? All right. Let's say that a guy walks over here right now at this very moment and offers me a hundred grand to give him a blowjob. I'm not gay. I'm not a fan of cock in my mouth. But I would drop to my knees and work him over like a starving man with a sausage humming the Star Spangled Banner. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just, I'm not against making money, but I'm not going to call the Hummer I give this cat my art. This being my second tattoo and sensing my own trend of getting them on my birthday already, I decided to go a bit bigger than Dada East v. Dada. I pulled an image of a Celtic knot, you know, given my Irish ethnicity, and the phrase Ars Gratia Artis, or Latin for art, for art's sake. The Celtic knot is believed to be a symbol of connectivity and unending serendipity between the physical and spiritual worlds, and it looks cool as shit. The phrase, at least the first time I ever saw it, comes from the MGM logo. I mean, it's older than that, but that was the first time I ever saw art for art's sake, Ars Gracia Artis. By 2009, man, I had made a lot of art in my life. Some for money, some to feed my ego, some to please audiences. The thing that I eventually noticed is that the stuff I created with an external agenda, be it recognition or compensation, was almost always sort of mediocre. When creating things as unpragmatic as a play, a story, a poem, I realized I do it for the sake of being able to do it, 
placing the values of comparison or monetization mostly changed the art itself rather than just letting it breathe on its own. Yeah, I know that's hippie, but that's just how it works. The sweet spot resides in the why when the passion for the creation is motivated by nothing more than the passion for the completed work without an outside factor coming into play. You know, I bake a cake and can declare it is a good cake because I tasted it and it was good. If seven other people taste my cake and are nonplussed, I, it's still a good cake, but it, you know, it seems like my taste is not in keeping with the popular opinion. You bake a cake, and in spite of how you feel about it, the cake is only deemed a good cake if those seven other tasters pass favorable judgment upon it. It's only good if each of the seven buy a cake from you. Yes, we are, all of us, whores, selling our most precious parts and skills to the highest bidder, sucking cocks in alleyways, desperately hoping that Richard Gere will one day buy us a fucking red singwood dress. Dancing monkeys scrambling for a peanut, the system we live in is rigged to favor those who know how to make a buck rather than those who can create things that edify, educate, and inspire ideas. So with that in mind, one, create art for the sake of creation. Write the book you would want to write. Write the book you would want to read. Sculpt the figure that captures your mind's eye. Take the photograph that inspires you. Write the poem that flays your flesh. Dance from the electric heart within you. Anything less than this is a pander. Anything less than this is a product. Anything less than this, and you might as well be selling zit cream or yogurt. Two. Ignore authority. Better yet, create art that defies authority, that spits in the face of the system that dictates monetary value and popularity over the purity of intent and authenticity of an idea. Three, work hard to make a living, to feed yourself, to pay your rent, but work harder to create that which feeds your soul. Four, if it's never been done before, it's better than doing that than the tried and true. Five, surprise yourself. Shock your own mundane sensibilities. Push beyond what you think is acceptable or in good taste or part of a genre. Scare the shit out of your parents and teachers. Art is a sledgehammer that destroys the convenient trappings of the now and a glue that pieces the broken shards together to form new stuff. Dada East v. Dada. Six, learn the rules so that you can break them in ways unheard of. Seven, art is the Magna Carta written on a roll of toilet paper. Seek not permanence of the art, but permanence of the ideas behind it. Eight, it doesn't matter if you are right as long as you are always moving. And nine, never take yourself seriously. Remember, you are completely expendable, unimportant and your lifespan is a drop of water in the ocean take your creation seriously not yourself the impact of art can change the world ars gracia artis that's tattoo number two Join me next week as I go through another chapter of the off-loop theater in the 90s nostalgia dump of WNEP Theater. And as odd as it is following an entire podcast devoted to creating art sans commerce, how about going to www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and throwing a few bucks my way to help to keep the lights on? I mean, oh sure, I'd be doing this regardless, 
but it sure would be nice, like throwing a fiver in the case of that trumpet player on the street, right? Also, what are your stories? I mean, whether you have ink on your body or you were a part of a theater company in the 90s or whatever, just decals on your trapper keeper. Oh, how I date myself. Each one of us has uh, stories. You all, the, look around you. The stuff you have on your desk, the stuff you have in your car, decals, stickers, buttons, anything. There's a story behind each and every one of those things. Tell those stories because they matter. They are the archaeology of your life. With that in mind, thanks for listening, and rock on. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Journeys.